Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dante Stewart. Dante is a speaker and a writer whose work in the areas of race, religion, and politics has been featured on CNN and in The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Witness, A Black Christian Collective, Comment, and elsewhere. He received his BA in sociology from Clemson University and is currently studying at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He is also the author of Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. And that's actually where we're going to be spending most of our time in this conversation. And so I want to welcome Dante to the deep dive. How are you, brother? Man, I am good, 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 brother Philip. How you doing today, bro? I am doing great, man. I finished the book last week. Okay. And, um, all yeah, right. this is recent. You're getting Let's like go. all the recency of me having gone through the work. And it really left me with a lot of different like impressions and ideas, both as I was reading it and after mm. I read it. Because I actually took the time to read it. I was traveling last week. And I read it on the first half of my trip going out to the West Coast and then finished it while I was on the West Coast Mm. and was making notes the whole way. So that's really just a long kind of preamble, which I think reflects kind of in a a weird way the direction of how the conversation is going to (laughs) go. Yeah, what's crazy. And you know what's crazy (laughs) is that like the front half of the book start on the East and like some of the back half end on the West, bro. Like, which is crazy. Like being in, so that chapter American is like in Cali or whatnot. And there's so much um, emotion in the book and, you know, I'm reflecting on things as a reader. Right. Mm. And Mm. I want to get into your head as to what you really wanted to get across, because what Mm. I got across as the person reading the book was like, an honesty that was really raw Mm. and things that I read that were painful to me, Mm. that were reflections of your experiences and things you went through. Mm. So I want to give you an opportunity before we really start to get into specifics to kind of reflect on like, what were you really trying to share Mm. when you wrote the book? Yeah, man, great question. And first of all, thank you for having me. So I count it a deep privilege, honor to be with you. I think for me, what I was really trying to share is that a sort of type of honest and vulnerable journey of wrestling with that question, what does it mean to be Black and American and Christian? And the ways in which those experiences are interwoven without my own narrative and my own story. I mean, you see that those experiences are great in some areas and they're gritty in other areas where really as a writer, as as I was trying to write, I wanted people to walk away like from this book, first and foremost saying, you know, like, yo, this dude really loved black people. Like he is somebody who was willing to grow, who had the courage to admit the ways in which 
many of us young black athletes go off to college and young black people in general, this can be true of and other persons of colors in general. But I want to speak to the particular experience of being young and black and on a college campus playing football, the ways in which we devalue where we come from and we, in some sense, assimilate to the dominant white narratives in order for us to achieve a sort of type of acclaim and access and acceptance and protection. And I wanted write readers to be invited in that journey, that honest, vulnerable wrestling with myself, not as the hero of my text, not as, in some sense, the center of my text, though I am. If I had to point like my text to a center, that center would be like the Black voices around me that made me who I was, whether that was my wife, whether it was my mama, uh, my friends, my grandma, Black writers that I resonated with and things like that. It really was a journey into, as Toni Morrison said in that brilliant New York Times essay from 1974, growing up Black one more time. And so that's the journey I wanted readers to go on is into my honest, vulnerable wrestling with who I had become and in some sense the courage it took to get me where I needed to be. And vulnerability, since you brought up that word, it comes up later in Mm -hmm. in my notes, Mm -hmm. but we can bring it to the front, Mm -hmm. is not typically the space that Black men feel the most comfortable. Oh, yeah. And for any variety of reasons. Some of those reasons are uniquely Black. Yes. Some of those issues are uniquely male. Yes. And how they intersect and sometimes diverge from one another. So Mm -hmm. the decision to be vulnerable in a place that is memorialized, right? Mm. Like this is now in print, is in digital, (laughs) it's available at your local library. That wasn't an easy thing to do. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And specifically when I got to that chapter, Womb, that's the chapter where I realized that like, yo, I needed to, like number one, I needed to go to therapy after that chapter. I was like, yo, like writing is, can be therapeutic, but writing does not replace my ability to be able to make sense of what happened to me and what I had become, the ways in which I um, hurt others, the ways in which I hurt myself, and how oftentimes we can become destructive. I like to say, you know, monsters are real uh, and we can become them if we allow ourselves to become them. And I think, you know, that was part of the hard part of telling that story. And even as a writer talking about crafting the story, I feel like one of the things I did not want to do is like make this like a trauma story. Like everything with being vulnerable in some sense was about what other people did to me and the ways in which it hurt me. I also wanted to lean into vulnerability as a positive thing and not even in some sense triumphal because, you know, we could talk about vulnerability in triumphal ways as if like the things we that made us vulnerable uh, or the ways we became vulnerable actually brought W's every time when in some sense, nah, it, di- it just did not. Oftentimes my vulnerability, I had to take some L's and had to embrace them and live with them and figure out ways to learn from them. Like my ideas of vulnerability, especially in this book, was kind of rooted in two things. It was rooted in reading uh, Kiese Lehman's Heavy. So Heavy was just, I mean, you talk about a beautifully vulnerable text. That book is, I recommend every Black male read that book. I recommend everybody in general, but Like I tell every black male to read that book to say like, yo, like the things that Kiese is doing in this text, the kind of theorizing he's doing, the kind of conversing he's doing, how he's, you know, inviting us to be honest about our our black maleness 
and especially in that chapter, Seatbelts, where he talks about his father and becoming an American man. And that he remember, you know, like young dudes and their daddies taught them how to be like, quote unquote, men. But, you know, he don't remember like daddies telling young men how to be vulnerable and whole and feel and things like that. And so, like, it was rooted in reading Kiese, but also it was rooted in reading Elizabeth Alexander's 2020 piece in The New Yorker entitled The Trayvon Generation and the ways in which, like, growing up, she says, in this moment in the last 25 years, we're growing up where young Black people, we are well, well-versed in some sense and well-experienced in the American experience and the ways in which the American experience forces us into vulnerability. And not the type of vulnerability that's life-giving, but the vulnerability that reminds you of loss. So that even if you go into my story where you, whether it was me as a young dude with other young dudes joining in with them and harming someone who we thought was gay, uh, or if it was like me sitting in my car with cops, or if it was like me and my family members with the white brother shooting at, with the white dude shooting at us, mm-hmm. we are reminded constantly of being forced into vulnerability. And even though vulnerability is good, can be good, like when you're forced in that joint into a vulnerable situation where you're simply trying to survive, where you're simply in kind of defensive posture, it's hard in some sense to become more mature, to think through things, to wrestle in that way, like to build life in ways in which you're not always responding to things that people do to you. So like what I wanted to do is like to do that type of work as a writer in ways that people will walk away and say like, okay, how can I lean into this other type of vulnerability in which like I'm not forced into a certain type of ethic of survival or posture of survival only, but I can thrive even when like situations that may not be great actually happen, that I allow those situations to say, okay, yeah, that happened to me, but like, that's not the end of the story. That's not all that is to me. That's not all that I have become, but also, you know, I have become terrible things and that's my story. And here's how I grew. Exactly. Or, or whatnot. And so like, that was the kind of tension that I was trying to write into. And I felt like I needed to write into as a writer for other people. So, and particularly for young black men, so that we can get free and realize that, yo, like you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything together to experience some sort of type of wholeness in your situation and embracing of the worst things that happen to you without allowing that to define the totality of your being. And you mentioned like tension Mm -hmm. and there's tension throughout the book Mm -hmm. in, in different ways. And one of the tensions that I identified very early, or I felt like you were were really like coming back to quite a bit, was this tension of belonging. Mm. And this is, and maybe it's typified in the the kind of three archetypes, if you want to think of them that way: the blackness, mm-hmm. the Americanness, the Christianity. To what extent those are distinct mm-hmm. from one another, but yet also connected. And then the twin flip of that Mm. is what I would describe, like we've used the word vulnerable, but Mm. I'm going to switch for the purpose of this question to precarious in the Mm. sense that it felt like the quest and the urgency to belong was also the very thing that was sometimes putting you through lived experience in precarious situations. Oh yeah. And there's the you as the protagonist but also the you as the general, like when you mentioned the Trayvon Mm. generation Mm. in the essay. So how do we balance or can we balance this notion of belonging with 
the precarious nature of our place here in the United States? Yeah, man, that is an excellent question. And like that question literally made me open up this passage in one of Baldwin's book, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And I think about like, that's very perceptive, especially when you talk about like the ways in which like I was trying to belong as a person. And in some sense, like I gave that to people who didn't know what to do with it. So like, I didn't even know what to do with it, whether I was talking about, you know, being young in the Pentecostal church or when I was belonging or trying to belong in the white church that I wrote about this tension that, that in one environment, one environment, you know, didn't want me to stay and the other environment never wanted to let me go. And both of them were confused about what they wanted for me. And I think so many of us grow up with this kind of tension of confusion outside of ourselves that really hurts our process of, you know, maturing as individuals, because oftentimes we're constantly living for like on the football field. We're living as one of my boys reminded me of as he was reading my book and things like that. We had a conversation. He was like, yo, for so long, we live just for the like good job, Dante or good job, Jay Watt. Um, and we live for that. And when we have to live for that, we're in effect saying like our worth and our ability to belong and be accepted is dependent on somebody else affirming and liking what we offer to the world rather than realizing that we in and of ourselves offer so much to the world that we in some sense need to bring out. And sometimes, you know, that needs to be brought out. And I mean, that is brought out in some of the tough situations, some of the terrible situations. But I want us to figure out, you know, how can we bring out the best of ourselves without feeling like we have to accept the worst of others in order to feel like, you know, we matter. And it reminded me, especially as you were talking about belonging, it reminded me of this, this section in Baldwin's text, early in Baldwin's text, where John Grimes, the, the main character, you know, Baldwin writes that, you know, that moment gave him from that time on, if not a weapon or at least a shield, he apprehended totally without belief or understanding that he had in himself a power that other people lacked, that he could use this to save himself, to raise himself, and that perhaps with this power, he might one day win that love which he so longed for. And I think about that idea of power in my own story where I say, you know, my mama said the truth would set me free, but it was my lying that gave me power. And this power was in some sense like John Grimes that Baldwin perceptively writes about. It's this power to finally in hopes win the love which I so long for. The simple affirmation, the simple respect, the simple love to say like, yo, I see you. You don't have to perform for whiteness. You don't have to assimilate to whiteness. You don't have to be like them in order to be accepted. Or in some sense, you don't have to assimilate to these kind of rigid standards of black church life that deny our ability to be free. And if, you know, you are like others inside of the church, those who are black LGBTQ, you don't have to be less than. You don't have to accept a certain type of theology. As Bob would write about in uh, in Notes of a Native Son, uh, in criticism of Richard Wright and his and the way of him writing uh, Native Son, you don't have to accept a theology that denies you life. Mm-hmm. But your human- and your humanity is not your burden, but it is a gift. And I think so often, you know, so many of us are socialized. And in my case, you know, for many people who are religious, you know, so many of us to use religious language are discipled into believing that our worth 
is dependent on our ability to be accepted and affirmed by other people without realizing that like our worth is just simply because we're human and we are alive and we have something to offer to this world. And when that is not affirmed from being young, when that is not affirmed in you when you're young and that affirmation can stay with you even when you fail, oftentimes you will go from this person to that person, simply giving them your humanity in hopes that they will finally protect it and mold and shape it to where it's finally something beautiful in the end without realizing that, yo, like as Baldwin, as Morrison said of Baldwin, you know, the crown, your crown has already been paid for. It's only up to you to walk into it. And sadly, I did not receive that message. Even being young, there were areas where I did in some sense, but there were many areas where I constantly had to prove myself, like in the chapter wages, where I'm going from being church boy to vacuum boy mm -hmm. to stew. And I'm wrestling with all these names my whole life. And I'm just trying to figure out like what this now means. And so like in some sense, like I felt like I felt like so much of like that belonging that we're looking for is that ability to love ourselves and respect ourselves. As June Jordan would say, to love ourselves and respect ourselves as if everything depended on our self-love and self-respect. And so in some sense, to talk about the epistolatory form as a writer is to say like, yo, this is not just simply a letter to being black, being American and being Christian, but it is a letter to all of those demographic, all of those experiences. It's sort of type of love letter to say like, yo, you can be soft, you can be human, you can be loved, you can be vulnerable, you can be beautiful and you can create art and you can fail and you can try again and you can do all these things. And there will be somebody waiting for you at the end to tell you that you're loved no matter what. And so by the time we get to the end at breath, and I return where I began, I wanted people to walk away with that. Like the belonging was in every single metaphor that came before. Every single avenue was a part of this finding myself, finding belonging, finding blackness again, finding Jesus, finding faith, finding love and hope, finding my humanity. And the belonging was in the journey of the tussling of being. I mean, I think that's probably kind of the way I would begin to think about the belonging and the precariousness of being Black, being American, being Christian, realizing that, yo, these experiences, these realities that we're often forced into will fail us. But there is a way for us to be loved and beautiful and vulnerable, even in the midst of the ugliness and the messiness. There's a way for us to not have to be perfect and things like that. There's a way for us to grow up and mature in ways that we don't have to become the worst of what each of these experiences can mean to us, but we can become the best of what we can embody. And you mentioned in there, like the lying comes up. Yes. Right? Yes. And what I wrote down in my notes was in kind of the fashion in which I write notes was like just lying. And then I kind of broke out that there was coping going yes. on in there. Mm. And there was also like a survival instinct yes. that was going on in there. And then in parentheses, I was like kind of thinking about we wear the mask, yes. right? Like the very famous off-repeated yeah. phrasing because sometimes that lying is survival yes. for many of us, mm -hmm. right? Particularly when we are pitted against 
one another. You mentioned that reality and it made me think of the story when the new dude comes on the team and he's kind of like the recruit. Yeah. You were the walk on. Yep. And you were like, yo, I hated that dude. Yes, 100. <laughs> and somewhat disconnected, but there is a coping mm-hmm. that's going on there and a yes. survival, particularly when these systems are making it that there can only be one, right? Mm-hmm. Like in corporate, I used to call it the Highlander effect, right? Mm-hmm. There can only be one Black person, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So there can only be one. So we're naturally pitted against one another. Like in all of that, mm-hmm. it is hard to get to the place where you feel like you're worthy of the love that you described. Yes. Wow. So that navigation of that isn't just in the scripture, yeah. at least not how I read it. Yeah. So like yeah. kind of take me through that a little bit. Yeah. Wow. And just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, particularly you mean in like how I kind of healed from that and made me yeah, absolutely and dealt with it. Perfect. So like I think about those moments and then I can think about my book from this perspective, like I, I wanted to write and it's going to make sense to what you asked. I wanted to write something that was like interdisciplinary to where like one could see the, the memoir and essay form, but one could also see, like you said, like there's coping inside of this. And if I think about that moment in my book where one of my teammates comes in and I feel like things are getting taken from me. And for me, like that is a right response. Like that's, I can't fault myself in that moment. Like I look back in hindsight and there are things that I regret about that moment, especially regarding leaving, but I can't fault myself for responding the way I did because I did earn the place that I had. And I think that I felt like there should be a certain type of loyalty and trust in that situation where trust and loyalty was broken. And so a lot of times when trust and loyalty is broken, that's when we are put into survival situations. When we are trusting and when we're loyal and we're in institutions that trust us and are loyal to us, then there can be a synergistic relationship to where we don't feel like we're standing on fragile ground. We can be a little bit looser. So we think about it like being on the football field, like when Saturday comes and it's time to play, we always had this idea like we want to play loose. We don't want to play tight. You can only play tight when you're prepared and you feel like like you're in the best possible situation to make sure you succeed as best you possibly can. And so that just was not the case in that moment. And so like I can't fault myself or even others when we're forced into a situation where loyalty and trust is broken. That just is a human response. And I'm reminded of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief, where she says, like, you go through denial, then you go through anger, then you go through bargaining, then you go through depression, then you finally hit this moment of acceptance. And it's not as linear as or kind of like tightly knit as that. Sometimes we're in a moment of denial. Sometimes we go from denial to depression and we kind of stay there. Sometimes we go from acceptance back to denial where like literally when I left Clemson, I had accepted the situation like, yo, this was a situation that's messed up. It's time for me to run again. And like I had accepted that reality that I need to run. I need to get away from this as far as possible so I can cope with the situation, cope with ways I felt like I was failing, ways that that I felt as I wrote, I was a black boy making bad sentences. When people called my name, I was a failure. I was this, I was that. So I had to run. And so like I went to acceptance, but then I went right back to denial and anger when I got to where I was at. And then ultimately I quit football. And that's the thing I have to live with continually is that I'll never know what's on the other side of that. And I think that in these moments, like coping for me was 
going through those stages of grief, as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross would say. And I think that my text as an interdisciplinary work was trying to navigate with how I learned how to cope. And I think one of the many ways I learned how to cope, of course, was my wife, who was my girl at the time. And then, you know, she became my wife. You kind of get inside that intimate interior journey with me and her, you know, the ways in which I failed her, the ways in which, you know, we learned together. She loved me. And so, so much of my coping, especially, you know, I didn't write about this, but like so much of my coping during those moments in Clemson and beyond, you know, was with my wife and the ways in which like she challenged me, she criticized me, but she also was committed to like me becoming the best that I could possibly become, even if that meant like failure and embracing my failure in ways that's not like, like that's demeaning to her own humanity. And I think this is one of the challenges about like writing about relationships in, in that way is that like you don't want to, and I wanted to be very careful that as I wrote my wife into the story and even black women uh, who would be the second uh, group who really helped me cope and navigate, like I did not want to write black women into this text in ways that like black womanhood was self-sacrificial and subservient. So I wanted my wife to be an autonomous person with agency who, and that's why I had to write that, like the way I did, like, you know, I didn't want to write like, you know, like, yo, like, like I was the hero, even in my own marriage. No, I pushed unnecessary strain on my relationships. And oftentimes, like we put those type of strains on our relationships to cope with what we became. I became the worst of what white people wanted me to become. I became the dude that was just performing blackness to be accepted by them and distance myself. And I made them comfortable. I gave them what they never deserved. And that was trust with my future, trust with my liberation, trust with my humanity, trust with my acceptance. And that put strain on every like literal relationship that was around me. And, you know, a part of that coping, so much of that coping was my wife being willing to be honest with me, but also other black women, whether they're through friendship with Michaela telling me, yo, Stu, you don't got a damn thing to offer black people. Or even my friend Nefertiti, who was my homie, like my wife and I and, and them and the Robinsons, like we're best friends. And I would not have got through the moment going through the white church and leaving without having them right there with us during that moment. But also I would not have in some sense been able to cope and move and become whole without the voices of black people, both black men and women, you know, black LGBTQ, I would not have been able to become who I was. And I think a lot of times, you know, when I think about my story and I think about as I help others navigate this, when I'm ministering to other people, I, I tell them like, you know, bitterness set in when we don't have any alternatives because you're always reminded of the trauma that other people force you to endure and that is the only story that you have in that moment and beyond that moment. And the only way that I was not able to, well, I was able to get over the bitterness that allowed me to create art. Now, I'm not talking about the bitterness that's like, because I feel like people weaponize bitterness, especially when you're talking about race, gender, sexual, political dynamics. Those who are historically and politically and religiously and uh, gendered and sexually marginalized we all people oftentimes use their bitterness as a weapon to devalue, as June Jordan would write about in in her essay in um in technical difficulties, where is the rage to deny and devalue the justice of their rage. Yeah, we can't use bitterness, you know, as a way to weaponize to kind of devalue and disrupt 
people struggle for liberation and humanity. But also we do have to talk about the ways in which bitterness can make us center those people who hurt us in ways that we can't move forward in embracing who we are and creating what we need to create. So Baldwin talked with Maya Angelou in an interview and he was like, yo, if I'm always angry, then I can't create art. I can't do this. So like anger has to like allow me to embrace myself, accept myself and offer alternative possibilities beyond the spaces that marginalize me. And so in order for me to have cope, I needed a better theology. I'm going to use a word in philosophy and sociology. I needed a better epistemology. Yep. I needed a better environment. I needed a better framework. I needed a better system. I needed better soil to grow and mature in. And I don't think that any many of us can cope beyond the spaces where we are marginalized and devalued if we don't have those spaces where we can heal and become better in ways that don't devalue what happened and distract us from what we're becoming, but also that opens opportunities for us to heal and become whole and become better beyond that situation. So that in the future, as Tony K. Bambara say, that we are determined to strive toward our future, sane and whole, not striding to our future, reminded simply of what others did to us in ways that we can't create anything beyond it. And I want to spend some more time talking about the relationships particularly in relationship, in connection to these notions of anti-Blackness that run through your story. But before we get there, so I want to jump into a slightly other point real quick, which is the theme that also comes up a lot that is connected to, I think, this journey and finding the fertile soil, this other soil, finding other futures is running. Mm. You talk a lot about like something would happen and you would run and there was mm. running and moving from place to place. So I think some of it is is literal. Like there was like mm. running going on as you were mm-hmm. like training as an athlete. And some of it that I interpreted as movement going mm-hmm. from one place to another, one situation from another. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me very much of like one of my favorite books, which is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Mm. There's that pivotal moment where it's like, mm-hmm. keep that black boy running. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I think so much of our story is movement connected to acceptance, movement connected to achievement in some way that's largely tied to acceptance. So, mm. and any number of other motivations, but there is a hustle culture, it's kind of a feeling mm-hmm. of movement all the time. Like you got to keep moving mm-hmm. in order to accomplish something, kind of a maybe a similar metaphor to running. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to spend some time there because it was powerfully interwoven into the book. And then again, it triggered this sort of Ralph mm-hmm. Ellison moment mm-hmm. to me. So that running again, is is that something that is meant to typify some of those things, some of that search for fertile soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And man, you're a very perceptive reader and that, that's incredible, you know, because you're bringing out so many of the themes that I wanted to creatively weave within my text. As a writer, every chapter has that metaphor, whether you're talking about wages or terror or rage or back rows or breath, you know, or American, you know, there's these kind of, there's a subtext woven within the text. And many of the subtexts, as you said, was this aspect of striding toward my future, sane and whole, as Bambara would say, or running to fertile ground. And there's areas where in the text and in my own story where I ran and then 
to the point where I got the courage to stop running. Or in some sense, maybe my running shifted directions. So I ran with the same, because running in my story, I had the same intensity. There was always an intensity toward running or affirmation or whatever. But then when these situations happened, whether it was Alton Sterling or Fernando Castile or being in a white church or being handed Martin Luther King's book and reading James Baldwin, or when my wife said, you're always listening to these other people when I've been telling you this the whole time, or when it's talking about going back home to South Carolina, there were moments where like, where I was running, it was good to run. It was necessary to run because we should strive. We should believe so much in our future that we run intentionally and intently toward that future and that we measure our steps and make sure you know, that we actually have the stamina to run, whether the race is short term when it comes to going to college or playing football or whether you're running a marathon, you're talking about building a life. You do want to be running towards those spaces, but you also want to make sure that you're you're resting as well. You're not running. Um, and I don't know if I found that out until late in my own book is that like there are moments where I have to run and moments where I have to rest. But if I'm going to run, I need to make sure that I'm running in the right direction and trying to reach the right place. And when I rest, I make sure that the rest that I'm giving getting is actually nourishing me and not just simply resting because I'm exhausted. There's a difference there. There's a difference between resting because you need to be nourished and you caring for yourself. You caring for your emotional, your physical, your mental health or resting because you're exhausted with just simply running and running, 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 running. I mean, this is kind of messed up situation in our society right now. And is that like, you know, we're forcing human beings to run, 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 run. And there's this ideology that you rest when you die, you know, and that, that's a terrible ideology. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't rest when we're exhausted. I mean, sometimes life's going to be like that, you know, and every exhaustion is not a bad exhaustion. But oftentimes in the context of like work and maturity and uh, growing and art and things like that and ministry and life, oftentimes we don't rest until we're exhausted and burn out. And then oftentimes, you know, we exhaustion is an indicator that you are already beyond your limits. It's an indicator you're already beyond those limits. And for me, when I think about those moments where like I learned how to rest and how to run in better ways that took care of my body, that took care of my mind, that took care of my vocation, that took care of my art, that took care of my family and friends. You know, that journey was a messy, messy journey. It's a journey where I failed at tremendously. And I think that part of that failure, I mean, part of that learning process is learning how to fail. I was talking to one of my friends the other day and we was talking about, you know, like deleting tweets and things like that. So I got like 60,000 tweets, bro online right now. And I was like, I was telling him like, yo, like, you know, there was a point in time in life where I might've thought like, yo, I need to delete things. But like, like now where I'm at, it's like, I don't want to delete things. Cause I feel like that part would take it to take away from the power of the journey of yeah. who I became. Absolutely. Like the ability to be courageous and face myself and say, you know, this is who I am. This is who I was. And this is what took me to become who I am. And I think about that, and, and I'm always reminded of this biblical story of Saul when he's anointed to be king, young dude, just like so many of us, young brother, you have an anointing on your life, but in order for you to reach 
the fulfillment of that calling on your life, God tells Saul, you have to go into this different place. You have to meet these different people. You have to take on these different perspectives. And then in the end, in verse 10, it says, once you go in these different places, once you meet these different type of people who have a different type of experience and perspective than you, then after you take on all that in that journey, it's going to be like you are a different person. And I think a part of my journey of maturation and becoming a different person is learning. Yes, these are the ways I ran. These are the ways I failed. But these are also the ways that I got better in the process. I learned how to go to different places. And yes, this place was not for me. I thought that it was for me, but it was not for me. And my wife reminded me this past week or the week before, she was like, yo, we got to thank God for things that we wanted that didn't work. You know, and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Amen. You know, there, there's so many things that we want in life that we put our trust in. We put our creativity in. We put our intentionality in and things like that. And oftentimes those places fail us. And in the end, we would look at it on in hindsight. It was better for us to not be in those spaces than it was to actually be there and get caught in a situation to where we can't grow in the future and in the process. And so, like, a part of it is like, yo, these places was not for me. I ran to other places. Then I ran to other places. Then I ran to other people. Then I went into other perspectives. And then in this whole journey of running and resting in the end now and even continually as Saul, I'm becoming a different person. I, I'm not going to delete parts of my story because that part of my story is what makes that story so powerful, so honest, so vulnerable is weaving the metaphor of running yep. and realizing that all of us are running. You know, we just want to make sure that we're running in the right direction and resting in ways that make us whole so that when we get back out in life, we're running in the right ways and not just running to spaces that's going to harm us in the end. And you get back to, I mean, I think this gives us, gets us back to relationships. Yes. Because at different parts of the book, as you're having these different experiences and grappling with these realities, you put together two, it's not just two, but there were sort of two tracks that I perceived kind of going through these stories that kind of kept coming back up. Throughout the book was your family, your wife, your mother, your grandmother, your uncle, cousins, kind of the the quintessential mm -hmm. extended family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then there are the family of, of Blackness that exists in the ether, so to speak, mm -hmm. of those who have been murdered, taken from us by the hands of the state, other violence rooted in white supremacy. And they kept like coming in concert mm -hmm. with one another. And there was a return, like a confrontation almost to the reality of a Trayvon Martin as compared to what's going on in your life at the mm -hmm. time, while I think you're still wrestling with some of your own journeys and what Blackness means right in other times mm -hmm. it's kind of ebbing and flowing ebbing and flowing mm -hmm. and you know you talked about those relationships and having agency and and there being this anti-blackness in there mm -hmm. that you had to confront and deal mm -hmm. with and mm -hmm. i'm sure I, I could dig around and find other texts that deal with that so directly <laughs> but I, i'm i'm not having one right now so using yours like you know how did you a, am I reading that right? And then B, how does that rooting of family, that's something that seems so important 
and mm. was so important, it almost puts into stark contrast how how powerful the opposing forces are mm. if you were willing to turn away from them while mm. now you're back. <laughs> mm. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, that's good. Like, and I think you're reading that correctly. Like, if I'm thinking about like my own family, you know, I felt like, I mean, part of it might have been guilt too, like the guilt of like what I had become and what 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 things have made me and and, and me just trying to like make the situation right and try and reach out in some way in forgiveness and forgiving and trying to be forgiven. So might've, I mean, that might be part of it, you know, in some sense. So that might've been still, you know, this kind of aspect of proving that like I had become something that was commendable, you know, and that's the tension of it. That's the tension of life that oftentimes we can't, you know, time can tell motive better than context oftentimes where we may be situated in this historical moment, but over time we see kind of what people prioritize. And so I hope that it wasn't just like, you know, transactional going back home and things like that. But for me- no, it doesn't read like that at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. For sure, for sure. That, well, that's good. But I think for me, so much of this is almost like the journey home. You're trying to find home. That's, that's woven within my text. So it's almost- this text could be read in some sense through the lens of like Greek mythology. And so those kind of journeys where one leaves what is familiar, I mean, they traverse through what is terrible um, and to return to the places that made them in the end much better, much more smarter, much more whole so that they serve those places better, even if they don't remain there for a long time. And so like it was, so I think like, yeah, there was so much of this journey going back to family was a part of me trying to find home, me trying to salvage that which was lost. But the more I read black literature, bro, like the more I started to take seriously the lives of my people. So like I had read Terion Williamson's uh, Scandalize My Name. And so it was kind of really in between reading James Cone said I wasn't going to tell nobody where he talks about, you know, the Detroit riot. And he says that, you know, he was he had a Ph.D. He's teaching at his white school and he needed a theology that would allow himself to be accountable to God and to black people where he didn't just want to be somebody who was smart and had concepts. But he wanted to be somebody who actually had a benefit for the masses of black people. Um, and this is oftentimes the criticism uh, post-civil rights in the 80s and in the 90s, uh, where with the rise of the Black middle class and things like that, where so many Black people ascended into the kind of spaces of whiteness that gave us cultural and social power. And we oftentimes forgot the masses of Black people who are still existing in, in the death grip of white supremacy in our country, even to this day. So as many people say, you know, white supremacy never died, it just evolved and it shifted into ways where it is that much more embedded in some sense and that much more interwoven in the daily aspect of our lives and the ways that we make decisions and who, as a God, we write, who we believe to be valuable, who we do believe not to be valuable and things like that, but also the ways in which it's rendered invisible and things like that. So like for me, it was a part of going back to the masses of Black people um, and realizing, you know, as, as both Terion Williamson says and and as Kevin Kwashi says and, and Sovereignty of Quiet and Black Aliveness, that, you know, Black world making, that our Black world, you know, as Elizabeth Alexander talks about, is the Black interior. 
the intimate spaces of black life, whether you're talking about baby Suggs and the clearing and, and beloved uh, with Toni Morrison, or whether you're talking about even, you know, in Baldwin, many of Baldwin's texts, uh, thinking about uh, thinking about Go Tell on the Mountain with that intimate space between blackness or even, you know, in The Fire Next Time where he's in this intimate space between the epistolatory letter to his nephew. Or, or you think about contemporary black literature with Jasmine Ward writing about her family. So I want to, or Kiese or Odisha writing about like black women's lives or Robert, you know, humanizing uh, black people during the time of enslavement and critiquing kind of dominant forms of telling the stories that still are cishet and male dominated. You know, I wanted to tell that particular story of my family interwoven within my own narrative that took us seriously. So as a writer, I did not want to complete this text without people being introduced to my family. So like a part of it was like that, but also like I was trying to imitate like black writers. So that's why I did it as well. Like, I wanted to imitate people. I wanted, like, when people call my name and my book shouting in the fire, I wanted them to, to see that I was a part of a noticeable tradition of Black theorizing, Black theologizing, of Black writing in general. You know, I'm a part of a noticeable tradition that took us seriously, that interwove Black people's stories, you know, made us as characters, as human characters within this text, within the narrative, I and mean, things like that. So, like, I really was trying to do something like Sarah Broom, like in the Yellow House. Like I wanted that joint to feel fleshy and beautiful and ugly yeah. and messy, but honest and vulnerable and liberating and humanizing in ways that like didn't just like triumphalize our stories and made us like as if like black people are just like as if we either exceptional, you know, in the sense of like in the white logic and in the white gaze, but also as if we're exceptional by ourselves. No, we fail too. Yeah, absolutely. Too. And as writers, we have a responsibility to tell the truth of that story, because if we don't tell the truth of that story, then when our children and their children grow up, you know, they'll grow up in a world where they're not prepared to deal with the ways in which we can harm ourselves and other people can harm us. You know, they're not ready to deal with that. We want to arm them in some sense with ways to love themselves and accept themselves in ways that we didn't have to, I mean, that we didn't have. You know, we don't want them to make the same mistakes that we made as generation before told us, you know, but oftentimes we kind of repeat those stories of the past. And so, like, I wanted to write my family members into this text because, yes, my family made me, but also I did want to be like, yo, they were worthy. Their lives were worthy and other people's lives were worthy of holding space in my text as illumination, as imagination, as intellectually rigorous thinking as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I want to. Get us into one more question on the cool. text, and then we're going to get to the final two segments of the show. And you know, I got pages of notes that there's That's no good, way there's no, no way we could have <laughs> there's no way we could have covered all of this. But I because it's to wrestle with the book, I think requires folks to really like read it. And one of the things I think it will also do, in in my own imagination, I think it will become a gateway to like those who pick up your book. I think they will gateway into other writers and thinkers because you you are part of that tradition and you, you reference work that I think is important for folks to really spend time with. And we're not all going to be in like the classes and the, mm -hmm. the institutional places in which to do that. But mm -hmm. all of those things are available. Like I said, I'm a big fan of the library. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I want to get out on this before we get to the final two segments. This idea of 
like learning how to be black, mm. learning how to love comes up consistently throughout the book. And I want to give you an opportunity to really put those two things together, even mm. though they're often ans- asked as separate mm. things. Man, yeah. And I think this is going to be a journey that we're continually on, this journey of of self-love and self-acceptance and self-respect. I'm so reminded of um, uh, Bell Hook's incredible book, uh, Salvation, Black People in Love. You know, it is one of my favorite, favorite books where Bell Hooks, you know, talks about decolonizing our minds. We got to decolonize our minds to to liberate ourselves from believing that Blackness is expendable in a sense. That like, you know, the way we grew up in our society, we know that we're consciously aware of being Black, but we don't take Blackness seriously in a way that we want to protect it, that we want to explore it, that we want to embrace it. And then you put religion into that, especially with the ways in which we spiritualize the human reality, where we say like the inner person matters more than the body. Then in some sense, we necessarily devalued our lived embodied experiments or as Black feminists, right, our standpoints, you know, our social location within the world, which is meaningful, our history. We were born as human beings in particular places during particular moments in particular times. And that matters to how we make sense of our identity and our ways of being within the world um, and the place in which we stand in the world and the ways in which, you know, we need to broaden that understanding as well. You know, so I think about it all also as, you know, being a Christian. Like a lot of times the way I learned to be a Christian is that like in order me to, for, for me to feel like, you know, my faith and my religion mattered, then somebody else must be put down or somebody else must be needing saving. Somebody else must be on the judgment. Somebody else must be in some sense intellectually or religiously or socially or politically less than me in order for me to feel like I mattered or like I was closer to God. And so like that really a part of it, that really was a part of like the, the kind of roots, you know, of my anti-blackness. And that's for centuries that has been the root of anti-blackness. I'm thinking, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and, and, and I'm thinking about uh, Dr. Willie James Jennings' uh, book, The Christian Imagination, you know, Theology and the Origins of Race, that oftentimes there's this integral relationship between theology and white supremacy that has a long storied history in colonialism and neo-colonialism and the world that both of those realities built. You know, the ways in which we think about bodies and people and land and creativity and art and the divine and our human experience. A lot of that is built on these kind of frameworks that were born in white supremacy and found their expansion within the white supremacist logic. So like for me, you know, about this idea of growing up Black woman time, as Morrison writes about, and even loving Blackness and loving myself, I'm, I'm so rooted in bell hooks and decolonizing our mind, decolonizing our experiences, decolonizing our voices. So like, I need, I don't just need the biblical text to be the only shaping voice in my life. It is a voice in my life, but there's no such thing as the quote unquote, the voice, because we're human. We listen to, we hold multitudes, you know, so I want that to be a part of my life. I I, I stand in the world as a Christian minister, uh, serving the historic Tabernacle Baptist Church, but also I stand in the world as somebody who's in that capacity who realizes like I have so much I can learn from other people and that that is just, 
that's not the totality of my identity, but that is a meaningful part of my identity. And that helps me make meaning within the world. And I think that that has helped me become a better Christian, a better person. But also I think that that has really helped me as it relates to my own racial identity, my own identity within the world. It, it helped me realize, you know, as, as, as a black dude, as a cishet black male, as a straight black male, as a married black male, I have a responsibility to interweave and work in other black experiences within, you know, my own kind of way I understand myself. You know, I need to broaden my framework. So I need a multitude of black voices to help me learn what does it mean to be black and love blackness. I need to lean on art. I need to lean on expression. I need to lean on dance. I need to lean on young people's literature. I need to lean on poetry. I need to lean on sermons and songs and social media and black Twitter. And then like the ways in which we create the world, whatever ways we black folk create the world, I need that to learn how to be black and love blackness. And I'm reminded, I'll end with this, Lucille Clifton, where she says, in some sense, at the end of that, at the beginning of that poem, she says, won't you come celebrate with me with the type of life I've made? And like, as I think about your question of learning how to be black and love blackness, I want to lean into this idea of celebration where Lucille Clifton invites the reader. And we don't know who that reader is. It's general. You know, won't you, the you is general come celebrate with me with the kind of life I've made, you know? And so in the end, those whom, whom are in the celebration with us in the end, who receive the invitation is oftentimes, you know, can be a testament of the type of people we interwove within our lives and who helped us understand who we can become and who we are. So I want a multiplicity of people celebrating with me in the end, that something has tried to kill me and has failed. Because it has failed, because something has tried to kill me and has failed, it is not just simply a testament of the type of life that I've made, but the people who helped me get here. And so to love Blackness, to celebrate it, to live in it, to survive, to thrive, and to do it with some type of grace and compassion, as uh, Maya Angelou so wonderfully says, is for me uh, decolonizing our experiences embracing our world, our Black world, and living in it and loving it and exploring it and what it has to offer, but also being able to broaden it and learn from other people so that in the end, when we are at that moment of celebration, whether that is now or in this you know, future, wherever that is, when we're in that moment of celebration, we're not just celebrating with people who look like us, but it will be a testament of the type of life we built that was honest, beautiful, vulnerable, that loved Black people, that embraced Black people, that told our stories in beautiful ways, that healed us, that made us whole, that saw us, that inspired us, that protect us, that did it with a little grace, a little beauty, a little sermonizing, a little preaching, a little shouting, a little loving, a little dancing, and whatever we can do, all of us can do to make sure that Black people survive and thrive into the future. Couldn't have said it any better myself, brother, and that's why I won't even try. <laughs> that was perfect, man. I want to get us into the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and The Drop. And Off the Dome cool. is literally just the first thing off the head. Cool. I got three questions for you. And the first one is, despite the fact that I think we said a little earlier, you know, we don't have to be superheroes and be heroic. Mm-hmm. My question does lean in that direction. Cool. Because I'm asking, if you were a superhero, what would be your power of choice? 
Dang, bro, that's real. Oh, bro. Oh, damn, that's tough, man. Like, I like the whole, like, um, like the whole kind of like, what's the sister name who can like move stuff with her hands in Marvel? Wanda. Oh, like yeah, Wanda. yeah. Scarlet yeah, Witch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would be like either Wanda or Vision or somebody like that. Like, okay. like Vision, I really dig Vision. Vision is dope. Like, I mean, Vision can fly, he's strong. I mean, he endures. I mean, Vision is fire. So if I was a superhero, Give me vision, you know, give me, give me all of that, you know, and I'm good. Okay. A little vision, a little Wanda, all mixed yeah, up together. Me, yeah, mixed them together. <laughs> there we go. Everybody as Karis one should have their own theme music. So what would be your theme song or your theme music? Oh, too easy. River Boulevard uh, by the Pointer Sisters. Um, okay. Oh, River Boulevard by the Pointer Sisters, hands down. Actually, up here, actually really cool, a really cool thing that I have from one of my friends is I don't have a vinyl record, but mm -hmm. I have a record player, but all my vinyl is up there. I've been okay. collecting them in that moment. And I, my friend, she got me the, I mean, it's original an original from that album that the river Boulevard is on from the Pointer sisters. Okay. And so when I get my record player, I'm gonna get it sometime because fall is here and wintertime is coming. And I got this space in my office right here where my office is all did up and nice right now. Where I'm gonna have to play me some Pointer Sisters. So I think uh, that's River like Boulevard is my very is my early favorite. late '70s Pointer Sisters too. Oh, right? oh yeah, oh bro, I, I yeah. am a '70s theme, bro. Yeah, like, that's because I'm I, like that's before the big popular hits. Yeah, yeah, bro, I am <laughs> yeah. a '70s theme. Yeah, 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 '70s theme. Give me all things '70s, and I'm Gucci. Now this last one is a question I've asked before. Listeners do love this question, but I thought this question would be particularly poignant for you and for us, given the, the nature of the conversation, which is if you had two choices, you can go back in time and visit your ancestors, or you can go mm. into the future and visit your descendants. Which would you choose? Oh, bro, that's hard. I ain't gonna lie. I think I'll go into the future though. Like, I mean, I'm very much influenced by, you know, Afrofuturistic thought. Like, even in my text, like I was like, like in Shouting in the Fire, there, there was like this dreaming that is at the heart of Afrofuturism, like these kind of alternative possibilities that my last chapter, Breath, in some sense, Breath is in the tradition of Afrofuturistic thought, like it's in that trajectory of like, and like I was reading, like, like during that month when I was doing my revisions, we was actually in the section of class where we was on Afrofuturism. So I was reading like a lot of, you know, Afrofuturistic thought. Especially that that great oh man if, if people can get a chance to read this so Mark Derry did an interview with three people Samuel Delaney Trisha Rose and somebody I forgot the other person it might be Greg Tate it's called Black to the Future oh my goodness it's incredible and it sounds like something Greg Tate will be involved in <laughs> oh yeah yeah if, if they can Black to the Future but then also I was reading uh, Dark Matter I think okay. it's like a century yeah a century of black speculative fiction. So like, yeah, I would go into the future, bro, because I love black speculative fiction and afrofuturism and things like that. So I go into the future, bro. Okay, perfect, perfect, man. Great answers across the board. So the final segment of the show is called The Drop, and it's just a time for us to share yeah. anything at all with our listeners. doesn't have to be, it could be anything. Yeah, it could be anything at all. And so I have a drop, and I'll go first, because my drop this week is actually kind of odd, or for this episode is a little odd, because... I'm sending people on a mission that might be a fool's mission, but nonetheless, I was reflecting on a, a local 
Access show. I'll say it was just in New York. It was probably up and down the East Coast, 80s kid called Video Music Box. And it was hosted mm-hmm. by Ralph McDaniels. It still comes on, but it comes on like again on like kind of local New York TV. Mm-hmm. Might be able to find it on YouTube as well. But it's like, I would love for someone, not me, though I would love to be involved with it ever it came to fruition, like do a project on like Video Music Box. Because at the time when this show was like really important to me, it, I didn't have cable. You know, MTV didn't really show black videos and I didn't have MTV anyway, Mm. but it was like my window into like broadening like my music. Mm. You know, it was the the only place where you could see hip hop because they didn't, hip hop wasn't shown anywhere and there was no real, this is before your MTV raps and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So I would send folks to like looking up maybe on YouTube if they could find footage of video music box or learn more about Ralph McDaniels. And Mm -hmm. I know for a lot of of Black kids growing up in New York in the 80s, this was like their source of both the music of their time, which for me was hip hop, but also a lot of alternative. There wasn't a word for it, but like other kinds of music that was made by Black people. Mm -hmm. So they had like Grace Jones on there. They had Nona Mm -hmm. Hendrix. This was the music that wasn't even getting played Mm -hmm. on Black radio, which was still predominantly just R&B. Well, I don't mean just in a bad way, but it was mm-hmm. R&B. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they weren't even playing hip hop. So mm-hmm. the history of Video Music Box, I think, is essential. And so that's my drop. So mm-hmm. you're up, brother. Okay. Why'd well, you share anything? Anything, man. Anything a, off a, the dome. A book, a, yeah. a song, anything that you think that listeners should like check out. Okay, cool, cool. Well, man, I am, um, let's see, what kind of phase I'm in right now? Like I'm in, I'm in this phase where like I'm preparing for every interview in a sense of like I'm reading continually. Like either I'm reading my book or I'm reading other people's book. If you look around, like my literal desk is like my desk is like literally full of books. Like, yeah. Like literally, <laughs> like there are books galore on my desk. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm always, you know, trying to be sharp when I approach each one of these interviews. Like I don't want to just be you know, somebody that like repeats what I said before and things like that, you know, I want to, you know, I want to have continuity and there's only but so much you can say about one text or experiences, you know, things like that. But I was talking with somebody the other day, I was like, yo, like one of the things I'm kind of getting tired of, and many of us are getting tired of, you know, with a lot of old heads, is like they ain't creating new stuff. Like it's almost as if like, you know, they done ascended, they done made it. And like they kind of living on books they wrote in the 90s or thoughts they thought in the 90s or the 2000s. And it's like, yo, we in a new moment and you're like leaders. And of course, like you lose like that mental capacity and that sharpness as you get older. But like in your capacity, keep on growing and things like that. So like, you know, what I would say for listeners is like whatever capacity you're doing that in, like, you know, whether that's business or school or relationships or, you know, church or whatever, if you're called on for anything, like make sure you prepare well. Don't just give somebody just some any old thing. Like people want to hear what we got to say. People want to listen. People affirm what is in us. You know, we want to make sure that we do our best to honor people's reaching out to us. So that means like, yo, like we're going to have to read and sharpen our skills and research and keep up to date with like the latest conversations and things like that. And you know, we got to invest in that and invest in those things and and spend some money in that and spend some time in that and reflect on that. 
So that's kind of where I'm at right now. What I would okay. do with listeners is like, you know, don't just like show up, like show up as best as you can. Keep trying to sharpen your skill set. Keep trying to sharpen your mind and your body and your intellect and just your, your wholeness. Don't just be satisfied with like the old stuff and things like that. Lean on it. There it is. Uh, but always revise, as Kiese says, you know, always revise. Keep on growing. Keep on thinking. Keep on wrestling. So that's Absolutely. what I Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great drop. And that is something that we should all strive to do, but never too senior in our place to do that kind of work. I want to thank you for the book, for the time, for being on a deep dive with me. This was a, a conversation I've been looking forward to since I finished the book and it was everything that, that I could have wanted. I think you're doing really important work thank and um, thank you for being on the show, brother. Oh, thank you, brother Philip. It's been a blessing. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.